So, not yesterday, but a week last Saturday, I was happily doing my bit at Christmas caroling in Regent Street outside the, it's called Coach, isn't it? Where the dinosaurs in the window, have you seen them? It's quite incredible actually, and it was a joy to be there with our marvelous trombone section, which I think apparently I missed a treat yesterday. You had the full trombone section. There were just four of you this first Saturday. I thought you were pretty amazing myself, even though there were just four of you. Happily minding my own business and collecting. And a very smart gentleman came up to me. And he really kind of fobbed me off a bit because he came with a lovely smile and he put a, a nice note into my tin and said... Um, there you are, that's for the Savage Army. And then he turned on me, not in a terrible way, but quite crossly. And he said, so I've given you some money, but what on earth do you think you're doing, Salvation Army, playing Christmas carols? It's Advent. So I don't think I did too bad of a job of explaining to him that we were trying to go with culture in order to get the gospel message through and that actually the high street don't particularly recognise Advent but they recognise Christmas and so we were trying to engage with culture and get that Christmas message through and he seemed quite happy with that because I assured him that within our church, within our worship context, we do celebrate Advent. But it's a bit tight, isn't it, to be honest, if we look at the Regent Hall programme, um, if we look at what happened last Sunday, which was a beautiful day, I loved every minute of it, so there's no criticism of that. We had our toy service, then we had our Christmas jumper service, fabulous. This afternoon it's gonna be Christmas again, then next Sunday we might get a bit more Advent, but it's tight to get Advent in. And I wouldn't admit this to that lovely gentleman, but he's sort of right, isn't he? He's kind of right. You see, in our instant gratification world, waiting is often just a bit of delicious fun. And we see that on the high streets, we see that in our own crazy programs. But the kind of waiting experienced in Isaiah 2 is not that kind of delicious fun. It's actually a very difficult kind of waiting. And I'm sorry to be the poo bar in the Christmas spirit, but if we're going to be true to the gospel, that's what. Isaiah 2 is all about this morning in a nutshell. Difficult waiting. And who doesn't know what difficult waiting is under the merriment? It's a bit like the waiting you see in the hospital waiting room. Now, without going on too much about it, this time last year, exactly on this day, I was in a hospital waiting room hearing some terrible news about my dad, who died 10 days later, five days before Christmas. So whilst the light service was going on, I was in that hospital waiting room hearing some bad news. I then discovered, for the first time in my life, the difficult waiting 
of Advent. And it's like the waiting when your plans are up in the air and everything solid you've assumed for your life is being rewritten in front of your eyes. We could say it's like the waiting after Jesus' crucifixion, unsure of what you thought you knew about God before the risen Christ shows up. And so the spirituality of a true Advent experience is actually an ache. It's not a happy feeling particularly, it's an ache. And it's a longing. And it's a, an ache and a longing that's linked to hope but not without the ache and the longing. And the biblical narrative is absolutely packed with Advent longing, isn't it? The Old Testament waiting for the promised Messiah to come and save the people. The New Testament waiting for Christ to return. When, Lord, when? And we could, if we chose, as Christians who kind of know what comes next, we could say, isn't it just better to skip that bit and let our ears strain for the angel song and for our eyes to find the Bethlehem star? We could do that because we sort of know what's coming next. But I have to say to you as a preacher and teacher this morning, we can't do that. We have to say a big no to that skipping. In fact, if we're going to be faithful to the gospel and to the tradition of Advent through the Christian year, we're going to need to do exactly the opposite and we're going to have to seek to cultivate Advent longing as the deepest spiritual discipline in our lives. We're going to have to focus on it and be intentional about it and sit with that ache and sit with that longing for a little bit. And we need to do this firstly to stand with those for whom the reality is that God hasn't yet come. For those people and those situations where God seems absent, So our text this morning took us to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and we find there a Jerusalem before the exile. Now, often we've focused on Isaiah 40 and beyond, which was written by a second author. If you remember, I think Richard explained that we now know that um, Isaiah was written through three different periods of Israelite history and probably by different collections of authors, and there's many hundreds of years apart. But this is in the first part by the first Isaiah, it's before the exile, before the people were exiled away from their homeland. But still in that time, Jerusalem before the exile is a fractious city. This was what led up to exile. It was a place of national and political arrogance and self-serving religion. We know this because in Isaiah 1, the preceding chapter, the prophet accuses Jerusalem of murder, a spirit of rebellion, injustice, and corruption. And Isaiah, after the bit we read this morning, says quite bluntly that God's people have forsaken God's ways. 
if we're going to take this text seriously this, this morning, we have to kind of take it full on the nose because you see at the heart of the Israelite nation, at the heart of Israelite politics was the religious establishment. Now we have a very different world where we have politics over here and religion over here, don't we? But in those days, they were so combined that whatever a prophet said against a city, he was actually saying against the religious establishment too, the corruption of the religious leaders. So if we're going to take this seriously this morning, then we can't only, you know, point fingers at the world around us, but we have to look within our church, within the whole wide church of God's people, within our own denomination, within our own community. And we have to let Isaiah's words speak not only out there, but in here. And of course, the other thing was, in those days, there was no such thing as an individualistic religion. So there was a personal faith, but it was very much tied up into being the people of God. So the idea of having a very personalized religion didn't uh, kind of really stand then. So again, if we're going to take this seriously, we can't only let the words wash over our nation and our sad world at the moment, but we have to also let it touch our church and we have to let it touch our own personal lives. That's if we're going to take the full breadth of this text seriously. And Jerusalem, known as the place of God's presence, Isaiah says, is currently in a shabby state. It's glorious and it's grubby. Glory and grubbiness. So again, we have to say that. We have to let those words not only speak to our worlds, but to speak to our church and to speak to us. You see, Jerusalem is a metaphor, isn't it? It's a metaphor as well as a history, a metaphor for all of life. And the way Isaiah responds to this conundrum of glory and grubbiness provides a map for us through our own journey of Advent through to Christmas. So how does he, how does he do it? Because the prophet in those days was taken very seriously. His words mattered, and they matter to us. Well, the first thing he did was he acted as a social critic. Isaiah was prepared to criticize Jerusalem, not because he was a critical person, but because he loved it so much. It was a lover's quarrel that he was prepared to be honest about the current reality. And that's what a prophet does. It doesn't just speak to future, it speaks to now. The prophetic word speaks to now. And so that prophetic word, that prophetic criticism comes to us today. And then the other thing that Isaiah did was to act as a social visionary. You see, despite the criticism and despite the horror that Isaiah felt at how things are now, he holds this deep, persistent hope that Jerusalem, despite its glory and its grubbiness, remains part of God's plan for the healing of the world. Let's look at the text. 
In the last days, Isaiah says, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills. People from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and there we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. Amen. They will hammer their swords into plowshares. That's where we go from warfare to gardening theme. And their spears into pruning hooks. We're going to become gardeners. That's good for me. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore because it's not going to be needed. In some ways, Isaiah's hopeful vision in the middle of the corruption of the current time was absolutely ridiculous. It was absolutely absurd. Just take this idea about Mount Zion. Mount Zion is hardly the biggest mountain in that area. There were far higher mountains than the little weeny mountain of Zion. The nations haven't yet flocked to the city. Warfare isn't yet done with. And hope in the second advent, in the New Testament, is just as ridiculous in a way, just as absurd. The truth that will defeat lies, that the dead will rise, that the peace will overcome war, and death itself will die. All those images we have in Revelations are surely hidden behind the tragedies of history for us. And yet, Isaiah says, it will come, it will come to pass. Against the present shabbiness, there will be a time when nations will gather in Jerusalem as a house of prayer where God meets with us. And because of this, he can face what he finds so unbearable about Jerusalem now. And so we today must discipline ourselves in Advent to stand with those for whom it's not yet okay, for whom salvation is somewhere in the future. Friends, some of our family, our neighborhood, our communities, our work colleagues, our country, on Tuesday, what is going to happen? What does this look like, this Advent ache for the Mullane family whose daughter Grace's body was found last night? What does it look like, that Advent ache? How long, Lord? How long is this pain going to go on? How long before you redeem this? 
victims of abuse. How long, Lord? And we also stand this morning with ourselves to cultivate the art of longing for God's kingdom to come in us, in the tension between now and not yet, we get to rehearse how to fall on our knees before God. Isn't that incredible? We get to play at it, to get to rehearse it, to get to practice this discipline of falling on our knees. Why? Because at the end of our rope, Our schemes at self-improvement fail, don't they? Our attempts to extricate ourselves from the traps we've set ourselves. And it dawns on us yet again in Advent that we cannot save ourselves. Without God's intervention, we're going to be up the creek without a paddle. A minister friend of ours once preached at a church a a lot of years ago, and he was quite distressed about this, but he had to visit a church that was about to be closed shortly after his visit. And after he'd preached, he stood chatting with the church steward at the altar, and he asked, what's happened here? And they came back at him with a few answers. There'd been several deaths in the congregation. Some families had moved away. The children's work had fizzled. This and that. But at the heart of it was an aching sense that God hadn't been faithful. And this is the experience of Advent Closed churches turned into warehouses, play schools, derelict. For the church in exile, that is how it is. And Advent invites us to dwell in the moment before the heavens open up and the angels sing and to stand with those and to stand with ourselves in the experience of Mr. Tumnus, who says to Lucy of Narnia, always winter, never Christmas. The broken relationship that won't mend, no matter how hard we try and put it back together. The knotty problem we can't seem to untie the sins we can't forgive ourselves for, the grief that binds us to our losses, the depression that won't quite naff off, the prayer that still seems to go unanswered. Yet, precisely at this point, God's redemption is promised, amen? Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words won't. And through that ache of Advent comes a deep and persistent hope, the vision of a restored world and a restored us, where war is done with, 
the sin of the world and my sin is dealt with and creation itself gets to be healed. And it's precisely when we recognize that we are in this strange place that Advent hope in a living, loving, unexpected, but very much needed God can be born, says Rowan Williams. If we can hope for the word that will not pass away. And so we stand with the Old Testament faith community, longing for a saviour, and with New Testament Christians as we wait for the second coming of Christ in praying for healing for the world and for us through Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes something beautiful about Advent, you know. He says that Advent will lead us where we need to get to. He says something like, the Advent-like ache that we feel actually will serve as a spiritual homing device which is placed in our hearts by God to lead us back to him. Is that stunning or not? So rather than it being unwanted little bit of Christmas, it's actually essential because it's our guide to take us back home. This is what he said about his own advent hurt and ache. And it's in a book called Till We Have Faces. It almost hurt me, like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from, the longing home. If that speaks to you this morning, just raise your hand. So when pressured by Christmas to be more or to feel more than I am capable of right now, Christ welcomes me with my small faith with my heartache for the world, for those I love, and for me. And I'm invited to trust, without glossing over our current shabbiness, that God is ever-present and holds on to the world, and he holds on to me and my life. In fact, in conclusion this morning, I dare to suggest that Advent is ultimately less about God being absent than us to waking up to his always being there. We don't know the time of completion. Even Jesus says in Matthew 24, he doesn't know and the angels don't know the time, but we trust the promise that heaven will come on earth. And so, if it's to train us back to him, this ache, we must dwell in Advent. We must stay with it in this training to ache for God. And so, I want to ask you this morning a very simple question. 
Where is that ache for you this morning? Where does it hurt? Where are you longing for God? Let that guide you back home to God, who will open the heavens for your salvation. Let's get ready. Amen.